And you're listening to 105.1 Life FM, Benigo's Positive Choice. And we are here again for Q&A with Samuel Chizikedi from A Reasonable Christianity. How are you today, Samuel? I am very well, thank you, Alida. Uh, we thank God that we can get together on this Sunday. Yes, we do. And uh, we're going to cover a bit of a hot topic today. Oh, um, do you mean like any other day? No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, I think we've, cap- we've uh, tackled a couple of hot topics. Um, but this one might be a little bit hotter than most, and we'll see right. whether or not we actually get around to covering it all today, or we might have to make another series out of this particular <laughs> one, depending what comes up. Yes. But the question yes. that uh, we're looking at is, what is biblical sexuality, and how does it differ from our current cultural idea of sexuality today? Right. Um, very good question, and uh, very deep. Uh, it shouldn't have been uh, a hard and difficult one, but we live in a very interesting times and uh, and even things that didn't need to be controversial are now and so the question about human sexuality has become uh, quite a significant one in our culture today so answering uh, such a question therefore requires that we you know we tactfully look at uh, what the proposition is now as I was thinking about this question, I was thinking, where should I start at a matter of definition? Start with our culture as it presents the idea of sexuality, or start with the biblical idea first. I, I was torn, I did not know exactly where to start. But here is at least where I'm going to start. Neither of these places, I want to start by acknowledgement that uh, talking about sexuality within our churches, not that the Bible doesn't, has been quite a taboo subject. Mm. And this, I'm not, I, mean, I, I grew up, I don't know about you, I grew up in the church. And um, and I grew up uh, in a, you know, my, my dad is, is a church minister, you know, retired at 75 years of age 10 years ago. And I can guarantee you that every time a sermon was given about human sexuality, it was to talk about sexual immorality rather than sexuality itself. Right. So those warnings, you know, yep. it's and it is given our current culture the idea that the Christians think sexual sex 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 and sexuality is bad, it's sinful, it's wrong, therefore it's stifling of human sexuality, painting it always in a bad light. And to a certain extent, that seems to me, intentionally or unintentionally, the church did not approach the question of sexuality properly. Mm. And every time it was talked about, it was all those warnings and you know, against sexual immorality and stuff like that. Mm. So, therefore, if the church did not take the the question and explore it, and you know. I don't know what was the last time you were in a church and, and the church minister stood in the pulpit and said the topic of my day today is human sexuality or sex and sexuality. Mm-hmm. No, it's too comfortable, uncomfortable. And so because of that, our culture therefore took upon itself to define the sexuality. And, you know, I wasn't here in the West, at least in the 1960s, but at least, you know, in a lot of literature and from history we know about the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Mm. I wasn't even born then, but... <laughs> and um, 
So it is according to our culture today, sexuality or at least human sexuality is looked at within uh, broadly. I'm, I'm just going to talk about this broadly, uh, you know, categorized within sort of a number of subheadings that I'm going to look at. Number one, sensuality. Okay, sensuality means it includes, you know, your knowledge of the anatomy, um, but also, you know, it includes stuff like body image. When the, our uh, culture talks about sexuality, uh, you know, you've got the eroticism of it, mm-hmm. okay. sensuality. You talk about body image, satisfaction uh, of pleasure, atta- attraction, and fantasies. So that's let's go into that sort of, uh, you know, sensuality section. And then you have the intimacy section, which, our, you know, our culture has defined it broadly to say, you know, the caring, the sharing, you know, there's, you know, you know, intimacy that involves connection and chemistry, you know, those things, you, yeah. know, you know, did they have chemistry or not? And and then, you know, it includes self-pleasure, um, is included in this intimacy part. Um, and and then you get, you know, what is called, you know, vulnerability. When you in, engage sexually with someone, you're sort of being vulnerable. I'm sort of, this is, when, when I'm using these terms, I've decided to use these terms because it's a terms that the culture in general will understand. Yeah. Okay. So I don't want to be any technical, just, just cultural, broad. Uh, and then you've got, in the category of sexuality, something new has been added, which is sexual identity. Mm. So you know, the idea that one's identity can be found in their sexuality. And this has become a really big, big thing. And then the last category is sexual reproduction. So, um, you know, sex, sexual re- reproduction. So um, these, these broad categories, so sensuality, intimacy, sexual identity, and sexual reproduction are the central main ideas around which our culture now, today, basically talks about. So when somebody talks about sexuality, it will always be viewed that way. It is pleasure, uh, eroticism, whether it is with someone or with yourself, okay, self-pleasure. Or uh, it is, you know, uh, as as I was saying earlier on, uh, it is, uh, you know, intimacy as it's defined in our culture today. And then you've got, you know, sexual identity which is now a big item, like bigger than all the others. But it is a consequence of the first one. You know, the pursuit of sensuality and pleasure, and mostly self-pleasure, because the engagement in sexuality in our culture is primarily geared toward the satisfaction of the person who engages in. I engage in this because I want to get pleasure from it. Okay, that's 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 the central purpose. So if I could therefore squeeze all those subcategories in one thing, it would be sexuality is centered on self. It's self-identifying, it's self-pleasure, even reproduction is built on self. Um, how do I know this? Is because 
even our own reproduction. You know, you don't reproduce because, you know, you are at the age of reproduction or reproduction happen as a consequence of engagement into a sexual act. No, reproduction must be because I want to. Yeah. Reproduce. Yeah. So if I didn't want to reproduce, then even though engagement in sexual interaction could produce uh, reproduction, I find ways, at least within our culture, we've even passed laws to make sure reproduction doesn't happen unless it is centered on me wanting it. Yeah. Okay. Unwanted pregnancies and stuff, you know, the Abortion. terminology yeah. as it goes. Yeah. So our culture's definition of sex is centered on self and the pleasure and whatever self can get from it. Okay? Does that make sense? So I've started with, yep. it's not me trying to define our culture in negative terms. I'm just simply saying that's what, at the very core, that's what our culture has defined engagement with sexuality. Okay? Mm. And so, let's say if it's pleasure, therefore it should be boundless. That's where we had headed now. Uh, if it's pleasure-based, Whatever will get me that pleasure. And now our boundaries have been pushed just a little bit at a time. Uh, you know, if my pleasure is by myself, okay. But if pleasure with somebody of a, you know, a, the opposite sex biologically, I'm using my terms to sort of explain how, you know, biologically somebody of, and that's where I draw my pleasure. Yes, but if uh, it was somebody of the same sex biologically, then it's as long as it is pleasure. So that way you get people who are either have the tendency to be hetero or bisexual. Mm. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. And then you can go from there to, well, it's not just simply biological differences. How about if it was just simply gender identity? In other words, sexual identity expressed as gender identity, which is what? You can find someone who uh, was you know, a male biologically, but then who found their identity gender-wise to express them as a female, according to our culture. Yeah. I'm not affirming these ideas. I'm just simply explaining how our culture is gone. And then so that person has moved to the other side. Okay, Their, their appearance and everything has gone to be a gender, gender female. And then you find a person who used to be a gender female who didn't find their expression in being gender female who was moved to becoming a gender male. Mm. And then you find that those two people with their sexual and gender expression get together. So in other words, if you kept them in their original place where they, where they were born mm. and if they flipped to the other side, they're still exactly... Engaging, but they've engaged now based on their now new gender found gender expression. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So the female is going to be male and the male is moved to be female and then they've gotten together. Mm. And that has happened quite a, oh, long, yes. a lot is, of times. It's a yeah. common occurrence. Yeah. yeah. So that, you know, you're thinking, well, what has been achieved? Now, you, people who don't understand the cultural thinking, they're like, but it used to be male and female, and you send two people, they've gone together based on the expression of this newfound gender yeah. identity, which is building their sexuality. So, so in a way there, uh, this is just simply a starting point to look at what our culture has defined. At the very core of it, it is the self, and the pleasure the self gets, the self-identification, so the way one 
describes themselves and one expresses themselves with their sexuality. Sexuality is therefore centered on life. So you're asking what is biblical sexuality and as especially in, in relation to our culture today. So in a nutshell, without getting technical, I've just simply explained, you know, from the sensuality to the intimacy to the, you know, sexual identity to reproduction. You see what I mean? Yep. Okay. So that is just from the cultural point of view. And then we go to the biblical point of view. And, and I want to finish up by saying the reason why the culture is developed like this is because the culture... You can look into every literature that is written about, you know, Western idea of sexuality. It starts by saying that the biblical Judeo-Christian worldview and the church negative view of sexuality is what, therefore, they are trying to address. Okay. Okay. Oh, that sounds really good. All right. Well, we've had that bit of an explanation and we'll come back after listening to Emu Music singing This Life I Live. i 
Listening to 105.1 Life FM, Bendigo's Positive Choice, and we're here talking about sexuality. And Samuel, you've 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 expanded a little bit on uh, and on where our culture is at the moment, mm, and you're going mm. to flesh that out a little more. Yeah, I was I was saying that it's interesting. Once you look at the assumptions with which the culture, or at least any set of thoughts, starts with, so the assumption is that the purpose of sexuality or sexuality itself is aimed at pleasure and it's the pleasure of self. Okay? Pleasure of self. Now, the pleasure of self could be produced by engagement with someone else so that the engagement produces that pleasure for you and for them. But the aim for getting in was the pleasure for me and they get pleasure, get pleasure, win-win, all good. And or self-pleasure, which has become quite... You know, it's it's become quite um, uh, uh, emphasized in our culture a lot today. Schools uh, it teaches these uh, the you know, you know self pleasure and all sorts of things uh, and, and, and do use of all sorts of methods. Now, you'll see that as we we start from that standpoint, then the assumption is therefore that no one can determine really. What would they give them the maximum of sexual pleasure in any sexual interaction? Therefore, one must be open to say, I don't know exactly what would give me the maximum pleasure sexually. I will therefore try things. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what our culture tells us right now. Yeah. The language like, look, you don't know, just be open, try, or even people who have been already engaged in human interaction sexually, they've grown up their life, if they didn't, you know, get as much pleasure in whatever interaction they have, they're going to try something else and try, and where they go, okay, well, I tried this, this really works for me, therefore now, because that's what works for me, pleasure-wise, it becomes, therefore, my identity. I identify as hetero, bi, or anything else. You see mm. what I mean? Yeah. And so, and so it becomes the, there's always uncertainty about your sexuality. You'd, and this has been taught in our schools, uh, part of our you know, uh, you know, sexual education. You know, you don't know what would be nice for you until you've tried certain things. And, and so you can see the opening up to this boundless exploration of this. It's a, become a... a you know, a, a, an entire area in our culture, sexual exploration, everybody's got to explore until they find exactly what floats their boat. And that's that's then, okay, you see what I mean? Yeah. And so these cultural ideas are held so strongly now that they have become, as you used to have the old expression, word of gospel. They've become like that so that if anybody had to say anything different or opposed to that idea. You know how it used to be? Uh, if a, a, a relig- a, 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 an idea is religiously held, I'm weighing my word, words carefully, an idea, if it's religiously held, and the person who religiously holds the idea 
must therefore enforce it and punish anyone who doesn't agree with it. Like Inquisition type in the you know old religious sort of um, you know centuries you know bygone centuries. Yeah. So that right now, if let's say you know you're at the school and there's sex education being taught at school, and you go, well, this idea doesn't sound true. There is this. There's another way of looking at it. Uh, automatically, you're out of line. Okay, you're out of line. If you're a public figure and you went counterculture, you're out of line. So it shall be demanded that you either repent and yeah. recant yeah. <laughs> your false ideas, or you shall be culturally punished. Mm. Okay, if you are a high, you know, sport person up there, you're going to be brought down. There's yeah, also can- punishment. You're cancelled. Council culture uh, yeah, is a consequence because mm. of, you know, the idea that sexuality in a sort of self-pleasuring, sensual manner is ultimate. Mm. Okay? So that's f- for our happiness. Now, let's look at the biblical idea of sexuality. I've started this program by admitting that the church is wrong or was wrong for not discussing this idea and making it taboo. And so the Bible doesn't talk about it. Mm. There is a lot of biblical text that, if I, I'm going to read one now, since it's the Bible, I'm not saying anything else, so that when I read it, I just if, if anybody who's a believer is basically in front of the Bible and hit me read this, just check how, how you feel inside when I'm reading that text. Mm. Now, it's not the most dramatic I can read, but there's a lot of biblical texts in here that are expressive about the idea of human sexuality that you don't hear every day. The preachers don't read it. They're not in the idea of our culture. It's not, there's not texts like that. But let me, here, let me set out the f- at least three or four main assumptions and ideas biblically that ground human sexuality. Okay? Four fundamental, um, it's three or four, it's just some, you can sort of divide the, the third category in the fourth, but okay, let's, let's hold three or four. Okay. First one, this is not where most people start. Uh, in the past, the church started sexuality by reproduction. Hmm. And so that's the culture opposes that and go, well, hang on a minute. What do you mean? Do you mean people can't just simply engage in sexuality for the sake of pleasure? They have to do it only when it's time to reproduce? Well, of course, yeah, the Bible doesn't teach that that's the case, but unfortunately, the preachers of, 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 of biblical truth started with sex must be for reproduction. Therefore, okay, we start to tease it up. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, it makes some sense, but not much. The, intra- the first and foremost idea of sexuality is uh, the sacredness of it. Mm. What it represents. What it represents. That's what grounds sexuality. I'm going to get to the rest, but let's see what it rep- what what it represents first. Before you said to me, well, why do you start there? Because exactly, it's where the culture starts. What sexuality represents here? Okay, it's a big, big thing. It represents a lot in our culture. So, biblically, sexuality represents the most sacred of all things that God has sanctified. Mm. Okay. What I mean, sanctified, it means things that is set apart. Maybe I need to explain the idea of sanctifying things. Let me show you the idea of sanctifying things. When you sanctify something, it means you put it as apart, set it apart, and give it a very high value. Mm. Okay? 
Now, it could be the person who sets the value up is properly justified to do that. For example, I'll give you an example. Our money, the value of our money, yeah. the piece of paper we have with photos on it, has been set apart by the government to be the only means of exchange. In other words, if we say that piece of paper is not the same as all the rest of the pieces of paper. Because you can't just turn around and wait. What is it? Just a piece of paper. Well, no. That piece of paper, even though the photos that are on it and whatever they designed, this has been set apart by government as the means of exchanging our economy. Yeah. If you counterfeited it, you'd be punished. Yes. You could say, well, hang on a minute. It's just a piece of paper with a photo. Why can't I make my own and stick a piece of photo? No, because that one has been sanctified. It has been set apart. Mm. By the government for a purpose. Are you getting what I'm saying? Yes. So that you don't sort of get the idea of sanctification in a religious sense. Let me give you another one. How cemeteries are sanctified. What would you feel if you saw somebody in a graveyard digging and bashing the tombstones? You'd be horrified. Mm. But they could say, but it's just a piece of cement with a piece of dirt with bodies that were buried in there that are already rotten. Anybody who dares to say that, it's so they're bringing down something that was set up to be holy in our culture. Mm. Are you getting what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm starting here because I think some terminology we use them and we start to lose the sense of what they mean. When I say something that we've, been, we've set apart for all the reasons that are given, we've set it apart and set it so high that everybody would look at it and look at it with reverence. Before you think that I am, uh, you know, talking about sanctified, just try, let somebody try to say something negative about sexuality as it's defined right now in our culture and see them being brought down. Because what? It's become sanctified. The, it's not the word, it's like a holy cow that no one, no one should touch. Are you getting what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. So, in that sense, sexuality was set apart to represent the most sanctified thing within the Christian worldview. Worship. Sexuality is the image of the unity of God. Sexuality in Christianity wasn't the purpose for for reproduction. No, that's low. That's down there. The first foremost purpose of sexuality is the representation of what it is, the means of exchange of the intimacy between man and God. It's called worship. Let's read the biblical text. Yeah. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. People don't read this one very often. So I'll read the text uh, quickly and then we'll get back, we'll get back and explain a lot more. Just turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. Now there's a the Bible has got a lot of metaphors and 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 and, and these metaphors give you deeper truths. Here in in the, the, the prophet is talking about the union between Israel and God. Mm -hmm. But listen to the terminologies that he uses. Let's read from verse 1. Um, see if I can do this in a couple of minutes. Uh, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, confront Jerusalem for a detestable practices, and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry at birth were in the land of Canaanite, where Abraham came from, from the, the land of uh, the Chaldeans. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother was a Hittite. So, he's basically describing where Israel came from. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor you were washed with water to make you clean. 
nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in clothes. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do anything, any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field for one day, uh, for on the day you were born, you were despised. I'm actually thinking that if we hold that as a thought. We will hold that as a thought. Then, Because I, I want to not have the flow of thoughts continue. So hold that as a thought. Read the text by yourself when you, where you're at home. If you're in your car, find a way to read the text. So when I come back, I want to talk about this text with you. All right. And in the meantime, we'll listen to Jaden Lavick singing, I Need Thee. Samuel, you yes. were reading from Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 16. All right. 
And so we're reading Ezekiel chapter chapter 16, and I wanted to just take a a slow approach to reading this text because it's an Old Testament text. And uh, when we read it today, most people are like Old Testament. Oh, they don't. They've already given it a wide berth, if you will. Mm. And so uh, I wanted to see what the prophet is is uh, is talking about here and how it pans out throughout the biblical text. So what he's describing here is the birth of the nation of Israel. And the key, there are, you get, you know, sort of a, a bit of a metaphorical language, okay? And the use of stylistic language to describe, because this colorful language always, within the Jewish literature, you get a lot of colorful language to describe certain matters. But then you can sort of see the conclusion. What he's saying here, the, the first section, the conclusion is in verse 5 at the end, which says, when you were born, you were despised. Mm. Full stop. Right? And so, how was Israel born? Israel was born after Joseph had gone to Egypt, and then Jacob and his whole family had followed, and then Joseph died. They became a pharaoh who never knew Joseph, and then there were now many of them, apart from 70 people who just simply moved there because of famine. Now they've become a nation in a, inside another nation, and they were slaves and they were despised. Yeah. Beaten up, mistreated. That's the point he's making. On the day when you become numerous and become a nation, you were despised. Mm. And on verse 6, then I passed by, it becomes the allegorical and metaphorical language. I passed by and saw you kicking in your blood as you lay there in your blood and I said to you, leave. It's trying to say, well, I gathered you and I gave you life. You were despised. It's like it's giving a metaphor of a child that was born and abandoned. You were a nation, you were born and you were despised. So he's using the met- metaphor, you were like a child that was born and left there to kick in the blood. Your umbilical cord wasn't cut. Because in those days, the cut of the umbilical cord, it's still like that in Africa. It's no longer like that here today, at least in the West. Uh, the cutting of the umbilical cord was always, always by the father. Okay. Because it typifies the ownership. That's my child. Mm-hmm. Right? So the kids that were born out of wedlock didn't have the father who cut the umbilical cord and that was the way to know, okay, well, that child, they, uh, uh, where's the dad? Whoever comes there to cut the umbilical cord takes ownership of this child. Oh, okay. Mm. Mm. See, we've learned, with these days it's healthcare <laughs> professional, right? They yeah. do it. Right. <laughs> now, so he said, I made you grow like a plant in the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Look at the language he uses. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew. You who were naked and bare. So it's described the plant, human language, your hair grew, your breast grew. And it says, Later I passed by, and when I looked at you, saw that you were old enough for love. Here the terminology is for intimacy. Mm. That's the, you were, in other words, for sexuality, for intimacy. Well, did God have intimacy with Israel? What's that about? Okay. I sprayed the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. This is basically a very not Jewish idiom for I engaged you intimately. I gave you my solemn oath and I entered into a covenant with you, declared the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. You became one with me. I engaged you and then, you know, you became mine. I birthed you with water and washed 
the blood from you and put ointment on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in a fine linen and covered you with costly garment. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose. This is what the engagement ring used to be. Didn't used to be on your finger, you know, ring finger. It used to be on the nose, mm-hmm. uh, on yours, earring on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil. So I fed you, look after you like my bride. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nation on account of your beauty. Because of the splendor I had given you, you made your beauty, made your beauty perfect, says the Lord. 15. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your, your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became ease. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. That's quite an interesting set of language there. Yeah. So when he's talking to the language, I adorned you, you know, beautiful cities, temple, everything. You know, you are, and that's the language he's using. And I engage you as a bride. Mm. You will notice this biblical language in Old Testament is used in the New Testament when Christ, when Apostle Paul talking about the church and Jesus, he says church is the bride of Christ. Yeah. So the language of marriage here, or intimacy, very like you notice when he says, well, I covered you in my garment, I engaged you closely, it was a season of love, and now you've gone because of the, you know, the ornament and the silver and the gold and all the place, high places, you've turned those places into places of prostitution. What does he mean by that? Mm. It's because after this had happened, Israel used to bring foreign gods, okay, Baal, Astartes, you know, all those. Uh, the first one that happened actually happened in the desert. They did a golden calf. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. So every time they went to bow and worship a foreign god, it's called prostitution. Mm. Actually, that's what the NIV renders it. All the, all the other translation says adultery. Mm. So what's adultery? It's the intimate sexual engagement with another who is not your spouse. Mm. We say in our Modern terminology, we say an affair. Mm. He had an affair, right? Yeah. So, in other words, when Israel reverence and bow and worships God, and get into that place of union, oneness, and intimacy with God, that is what was typified as sexual intimacy. Okay? It's this reverence and the worship. It's the most highly sanctified in all of God's creation, Worship and reverence to God. It is him and him. His is the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who got you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. Commandment mm. one. Yeah. Commandment two. There shall not be to you the God of others. Mm. When you shall have no other God. Before, you, before me. Yeah. Which yeah. is how, how the Christian read it. The Jews mm. said, there shall not be to you the God of others. Doesn't matter how everybody is going and do this stuff. You will not do it because I am the only one that you worship and you bow and you give reverence to. And there's justification for that. Like, the worship of any other God is absolutely illegitimate. Mm. It's like you can't say, well, somebody's married and go, you know, go sleep around. 
It's an illegitimate act. So most people are like, well, I don't want to worship your God. Okay, well, I get that. But you can see, if God is, and if he is who he says he is, reverencing him should be appropriate. Yeah. It's like you can't be an Australian and just simply despise Australian institutions and Australian laws. It's illegitimate. Mm. Right? I understand people can be rebellious, but if God is who he is, if you're in Australia and there's institutions, you obey them. And if you don't, everybody will go, no, you're doing the wrong thing. So anybody who knows there is God and doesn't worship him, does the wrong thing. Mm. And so, therefore, Christian sexuality is the image of the most sacred intimacy with God. It produces oneness. It produces Closer bond together, and it's the strongest bond the bond of love, bond of respect, of communion, and so on and so forth. That's the first and foremost purpose of sexuality not self identification, not self pleasure. Number two, the second purpose within the Christian thinking is not reproduction because it's the unity, it's symbol of the unity with God. It is therefore a symbol of the unity between the man and the woman. When they engage in that act, they become one. Mm. Here's Genesis chapter 2. After God has you know, made you know, man and woman, and the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, um, verse 24, For this reason, I could read a bit earlier. Uh, let's, let's start a bit earlier. If you read from verse 20, So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the air and all the beasts in the field. But Adam, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man, don't get hang up on suitable helper, just okay, just think somebody, a companion. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the Lord caused the man to fall into deep sleep. And while he was asleep, he took one of the men's ribs and closed up the place of the flesh. Then the Lord gave them, uh, gave, made the woman from the rib, and he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And here's the first thing the man says. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. And then this is God's own solemn words. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will unite to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Mm. This language of unity here, if it properly understood within the Jewish context, it means man will engage intimately, sexually with his wife. Wife will engage intimately with his with a husband, and that will we will make them one. Mm. Well, how do you do? I know that Jesus repeated this uh, in Matthew nineteen. Um, but let me read how Apostle Paul renders this. Apostle Paul renders this in First Corinthians six. Now he's obviously talking about sexual immorality here, but he's trying to say don't do it with anyone else because where any time you do it, you unite. Okay. Uh, so here is First uh, Corinthians chapter six, uh, verse eighteen. Uh, let me read it very quickly uh, before we take a quick break. Now, um, uh, let's read. Okay, I, I, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, a lot more so that we have a bit of context. Uh, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. But by His power, God raised 
the Lord from the dead and he will raise us as well. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unite himself with a prostitute is one with her in the body? Mm. Apostle Paul saying here that if somebody goes and engages sexually with someone who is a prostitute, which was in those days, uh, you know, any union of that sort brings this oneness, this unity. So, number one, sexuality is the highest and the most sacred. Mm. It's the tip, t- the type of worship of God. Number two, the purpose is to unite the couple. Okay. So up until now, I haven't talked about reproduction, and we'll talk about reproduction later on. All right. Well, it's all sounding very interesting. So we're going to listen to Kelly Reed singing Cleanse You.
Listening to 105.1 Life FM, Bendigo's Positive Choice, and we're talking about sexuality. Yes. And so here we are. Uh, I established the two fundamental first, uh, you know, uh, points to understand about the way biblical Christianity is framed. Number one, it is the most holy and the most sacred for what it represents. Yeah. It's like money, even though it's a piece of paper. It is sacred for what it represents, yeah. the means of exchange. So that whenever you put that tender forward, that piece of paper, nobody goes, well, it's just a piece of paper. So it, it represents the most sacred, the reverence and the worship of God, which then brings about the unity. When we worship God, we become one with him because we reverence him. We put him higher than anything else. And then we enter that moment of more intimate, uh, you know, in, intimate nature with him. And so when God gives human sex- sexuality, is like this, every time you engage here, this is what it represents. That's why it's so holy. So human sexuality is holy. It's very different from animal sexuality. Because animal sexuality is not aimed at the worship of God. Okay? So they aimed at the worship of God. And where is human sexuality? Because man was made to worship God. Mm. The purpose for man living is to know God and to worship Him. So, so, so if men disconnect himself from the knowledge of God and the worship of God, you cannot do that because then you will have to substitute something in the place of God. Mm. This is why, you know, engagement with other, other deities becomes just what happens. Now, it, people of old used to substitute God with golden calf or some, you know, creature that had human face and then head of a goat called Baphomet. Mm. It's coming, it's coming back into force now in our culture. You know, more, more, you know, you find this Baphomet, and so that's p- things like Baal, Astarte, all those sort of gods. But, but also further on, at the core of it is the I am God, because mm. even the gods that we build with our own hands. <laughs> We build those. Right? Yeah, that's right. So, if there is no God, you will substitute him by something else. Money, power, or education, or anything. There's going to be something that's going to be more reverence than anything else. So, that's the first thing. Second thing is for the unity of the couple. And this is where I was saying I've got three, but four. So, in here, then you find the third one, okay? Because mm. this unity cannot be achieved or is not achieved outside pleasure. That's why the third one comes in. What that which we have made, when we have made pleasure the centrality, we've knocked the foundation of the house. So you've got the worship of God, the unity of the couple, which must be pleasurable. Well, I, why do I say that? Because there are plenty of texts in the biblical text that I can. Let me pull out Proverbs chapter five. 
You find this throughout the, the, the Bible. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18. Let's, let's just uh, pull that up uh, very quickly. And if I can find it in my Bible right here, his proverb, his 5 and verse 18. And the writer of the proverb uh, says this. Um, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Okay. May you have pleasure, or the version say, may you share the pleasure with the wife of your youth. And so it does, that text there doesn't say anything about reproduction. They just simply enjoy each other. Mm. Here is uh, uh, Songs of Solomon, chapter 7. It's quite an interesting one. Most people don't read this one. Uh, I can't remember when the last time I, you know, I was in the church in Songs of Solomon where it's in the Bible. We're preached on. Yes. Nobody opens it and start reading. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so here, here is, um, you know, it's this text about the lover, uh, which is how beautiful your sandal feet, oh, prince daughter, your grateful legs are like jewels and the work of a craftsman's hands. Your novel is a rounded goblet that never lack blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat and encircled by lilies. Think, think about that. That's awesome. Um, you know, read that to my wife. It's awesome stuff. Um, Don't know you, about the wheat bit, but anyway, <laughs> it's 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 Jewish idiom. It's like yeah, poems. It's poems. Yeah, yeah. you know. And verse three is quite interesting. Your breasts are like the two fawns, twins of a gazelle. You know, your neck is like ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Hesbon. Uh, Hesbon. Uh, by the gate of Bath Rabbim. This is a man lavishing his wife with all the fritting. And, and so far there, there's no reproduction talked about. Because if that pleasurable intimacy doesn't come in, there's not going to be no, no reproduction coming up, right? And so you've got intimate, you know, you know, it's the type of, in, yeah, of worship. It is the unity of the two become one. This is why you don't go just uniting with, Anyone else, you unite only with your spouse. And number three is a pleasurable unity. And number four comes the last one, which the church had been emphasizing too long, reproduction. Okay. Now, having said that, I want you to see as, as we will look at, you know, the, 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 contrasting the two as we head on with these intricate questions. But let's sort of wrap up the first introductory notes of what we've spoken about so far. So, our, our culture is started by saying the last thing, God bless them and say multiply, the last thing on the list of the Christian purpose for sexuality, which of course wrongly the church had emphasized, had not been picked up and say, well, this is what it is. it's all about having kids. Well, that mean we can't enjoy sexuality even if you don't have kids or when you're starting up early or what if you've already hit menopause? Should you stop? Mm-hmm. You see, we should, the church should itself in the foot by emphasizing that point. But if it was the unity, the worship of God, and the pleasure of the bond within the couple, then the culture is not teaching us nothing new. Okay? So, that's number one. Our culture, therefore, has gone, sex is for pleasure. It's basically knocked the foundation of sexuality off its, you know, base. And therefore, because of that, we, we will have a society that has no restriction around sexuality, because we think, why should we restrict sexuality? But there's a lot of things we, we uh, things that are sacred, and if sexuality is as 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 important as our culture tells us, there should be some restriction around it. 
Right? Your things that are sacred, you still put certain restrictions. Doesn't mean you're spoiling the fun. No. You're saying there's an appropriate way of using this. Mm. Your car is precious. There's an appropriate way of using it. Okay. You know, anything that is precious to you, you go, well, this is appropriate. Even our language, even our interaction, there's appropriate ways and not appropriate ways. And so, but the bottom line is, the culture wants to say, we God, we determine the purpose of sexuality, just kick God out. So when you're asking me, what's the biblical sexuality? Biblical sexuality is rich. It's absolutely, our culture uh, understanding of sexuality deprives us of the deeper meaning of sexuality by pegging it just simply on the altar of pleasure. Mm. Yep. Whereas the biblical sexuality includes pleasure, but includes also the oneness. See, people go and get the pleasure without being, without even engaging to be one. No. So there are people who just go from here to there, multiple partners. They don't care deeply about the person and the oneness that sexuality needs to reproduce just because they're pursuing pleasure. Yeah, that's right. They end up hurting each other. And so we can we can talk about that. I will contrast this a lot more. But I want to say to you one thing. If God is the maker of everything, we must give him the right to determine how things should be used. And if you're a Christian, that's the proposition. That's absolutely correct. Well, it's a big topic and we're going to continue on with it next week.